Let us open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. If you thought you were getting a break from Ephesians this morning, you are disappointed. I thought there is no reason for us to change it because we landed on a perfect spot for Resurrection Sunday. This morning we are considering together verse 15. But let me begin reading in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. As many, as many of you know, for our Sunday School lessons, we have been engaged in a study led by the late R.C. Sproul, in which he is unfolding for us the entire history of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Now, the point of the study is to highlight the progression of the main events that help us understand God's plan of salvation for his people as seen in the entire Bible, in the entire Bible. Now, the reason I bring this up to you this morning is because I want to draw your attention to the title of this study. It is called, From Dust to What? To Glory. From Dust to Glory. I like that title because it, it truly captures the essence of the message of Scripture. From Dust to Glory. These two words comprehend the entirety of the Christian message, and both have to do with each one of us. Consider, consider each word separately. Dust. What is dust? Well, dust is the material from which Adam was created. But it is not just that. Dust is also the material to which we return when we die. When Adam fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, this is what God said to him as recorded in the first book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. If you have ever wondered... Why is it that when we die, we decompose and we return to the dust? There is your answer. It is a part of the curse of sin, not of the original design. We decompose when we die because of sin. In other words, the evidence that sin is a reality that affects us all is the fact that death comes to all of us and our bodies become dust through the process of decomposition. Are you encouraged this morning? 
Dust represents the curse. But then consider the other word, glory. What is glory? Glory is that which belongs to God alone. And it is to be understood in contrast to dust. Here's what I mean. Whereas the concept of dust carries with it the idea of death, the concept of glory carries with it the idea of life. Not any life, but life eternal and blissful life. Dust points to decay leading to death. Glory points to life leading into eternity. In fact, one of the characteristics of glory is given to us in the last book of the Bible. I mentioned the first book of the Bible where dust is introduced. But let me give you a characteristic of glory as given to us in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. In this passage, the apostle John describes for us the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Listen to these beautiful words. He says this, he, meaning God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then listen to this, and death shall be no more. For the former things have passed away. This is a description of glory. This is the world for which man was originally created, namely a world without death, a world of pure life. But due to sin, man is now confined to this world, which is a world of dust, meaning this is now a world of decomposition, decay, suffering, agony, death. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where he says, For all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. Man fell short of God's glory. What does that mean? It means this. Man fell short of, listen to this, of sharing in the life of God, which is eternal, blissful, and perfect. In other words, the life that man could have had in the Garden of Eden was lost because of disobedience. Now man is destined to dust, no longer to glory. He's destined to death, no longer to life. The central question then that the Bible is seeking to answer from Genesis to Revelation is as follows. How does man go from dust to glory? In other words, is there a bridge between dust and glory? Is there any hope of man ever changing his current world of dust for a better world of glory in which death is no longer a reality and there is only blissful life in the presence of God? Can man ever recover his original purpose of sharing in the very life of God himself and dwelling with him forever? Is there a path to go from death, from dust to glory. Can we go from the dusty Genesis 3, where death is introduced, to the glorious Revelation 21, where death is no more? The answer is given to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15. The bridge between dust and glory is, in fact, the central message of the entire Bible, namely, the gospel of peace. Why the gospel of peace? This is what I will attempt to answer this morning. So in order to accomplish this, I have four questions to ask of Ephesians chapter six, verse 15. First, what is the gospel? 
Second, why is the gospel of peace the path that takes us from dust to glory? Third, why is it called the gospel of peace? And fourth and final, and for application purposes, why does Paul use the analogy of the shoes? What's up with the shoes? Those are the four questions that will provide the framework for us this morning. And so let's consider the first one. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? I would venture to guess that at least some of you might be thinking this morning, well, I thought this was Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Why aren't we talking more about the resurrection? Why are we talking about the gospel of peace? Well, my friend, if that's you, I have to tell you that you cannot possibly understand the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from a comprehensive view of the gospel, of the gospel. It is an impossibility. This is because the resurrection is not an event that took place in isolation. The resurrection is an essential part of the entire gospel story. So what is the gospel then? Well, at the most fundamental level, the gospel is good news concerning a person, namely Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message concerning the accomplishment of God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the first thing we need to understand about the gospel is that it is first and foremost an objective message that cannot be altered. In other words, the gospel is a message concerning a historical event. The gospel took place in actual history. The gospel is about a real man named Jesus who really walked the earth, who really lived a perfect life, who really died on a cross, who really was buried in a tomb, who really and bodily rose from the dead and came out of the tomb, who really appeared to several hundred people and who really ascended into heaven and returned to the glory he had prior to his incarnation. This is the gospel. Therefore, when we announce the gospel, we are announcing the most important event in all of human history, namely, what God did through the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And this is good news. This is good news. And here is the power of the gospel or this good news. You want to hear it? Here's the power, all right? You ready? It is good news. It is good news whether you believe it or not. It is good news. The gospel is an objective message that is not subject to change by human feelings or earthly circumstances or events. Jesus did become a man. Jesus did live a perfect life. Jesus did die on a cross and Jesus did rise from the dead and he did ascend into heaven and all that took place in actual real human history. This is the good news. This is the gospel. So when we preach the gospel or speak about the gospel, we are pointing you to a person, namely to Jesus. And this is something that is imperative for you to understand. The gospel is not primarily about you looking inward, but outward. The gospel message is not an invitation for you to look into yourself, but to look away from yourself. Jesus is the good news. The Lord 
is the good news. The gospel is God intervening in human history through his son, Jesus Christ, in order to definitively and finally solve man's hopeless and endless plight, namely death brought about by sin. At this point, I see the need to remind you that regardless, regardless of where you stand in relation to Christianity and the Bible, regardless of where you stand, there is one undeniable fact about you, and it is this, you are going to die. I think sometimes we forget that our time is short and that our days are numbered. Death will come to all of us with absolute crushing force, whether you believe in the gospel or not. Why? Because all of us, without exceptions, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, I'm speaking to you upon the unmovable conviction that you and I will die. Death is inevitable and death is final. This is the gospel then. It is the objective, historical, unchangeable message that God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus, entered into this world as a human being, lived perfectly, died vicariously, rose victoriously, and ascended gloriously. Now, let's personalize it. Let's make it personal. Let's bring this to our own lives, which brings us back to the introductory remarks that I made regarding the words from dust to glory. And this leads us to the second question. Why is the gospel of peace the path that takes us from dust to glory? The question is basically this. What does the gospel have to do with me? If the gospel is about a historical event concerning a man named Jesus, who lived over 2,000 years ago, whom we have never met, what does the life of this man, the death of this man, the resurrection of this man, and the ascension of this man have to do with me in the 21st century? Remember the words, dust and glory. As I said, dust is a reference to what? To death. It is what we become when we die. Glory is a reference to life, and it is that from which we have fallen short due to our sin. If the central plight of man then is that he is confined to this unending cycle of being born only to decay and eventually decompose and become dust, how is this gospel the path that lifts us out of our misery and into glory? Think with me about human history a little longer. The history of the world can teach us many lessons, but here's one of the main ones. It is not within the realm of human possibilities to bring oneself from death to life. Is that revolutionizing your, your mind right now? Are you shocked? It is not within the realm of human possibilities to bring oneself from death to life. You can look at any culture at any point in human history, and you will find one common denominator, death is impossible to overcome through human means. Just think about it. What are the chances of a dead body ever coming back to life? How many days would you give it before you simply give up and go home? Here's where the gospel comes in. What the entire humanity could not do and still cannot do, the Lord Jesus did in three days by his own power. He gave up his own life on the cross, and then he took his own life back 
That is the gospel. And just give it a little more thoughts. That a man died and three days later he rose from the dead must be, without a doubt, the most significant event in all of human history. The question is, how does this affect you? How does this affect you? Well, that question takes us back to a conversation that took place a long time ago between God and one man. Can you guess the name? Abraham. Abraham. This is recorded for us in the book of Genesis. Now, as I read what took place between God and Abraham, I need you to go in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read to you what happened in this encounter between God and Abraham. And then we're going to talk a little bit about these words. God made a covenant with Abraham. And we find this all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 12. And this is what God promised Abraham. Listen to these words. In you, God said to Abraham, in you, all the families, families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, are you in the book of Galatians? Yes? Some of you don't want to speak out loud this morning. I don't know why. Galatians chapter 3. God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know what the, those words are? Consider this, Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 and 8. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Gentiles meaning non-Jewish, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying what? In you shall all the nations be blessed. That's amazing. The promise that God made to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth, Paul calls the gospel. The gospel, but how so? Didn't I just say a few moments ago that the gospel is about Jesus? How can those words spoken to Abraham thousands of years ago be the gospel when Jesus is not even mentioned? Here's how. That promise given to Abraham was fulfilled in and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the blessing of which God spoke to Abraham. So when God made that promise to Abraham thousands of years ago, God was talking about the worldwide church being rescued by the Lord Jesus. Amazing. Now, what is this blessing promised to Abraham? Well, here's Paul in the same book of Galatians, same chapter. He will explain it himself. So let's keep reading in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of who? Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham then? 
It is the work of Jesus on behalf of his people, his elect, his church. Jesus came to die for his church, as we learned in Ephesians 5.25. The Lord took the church's punishment for her sins. The holy and righteous wrath of God for the sins of the church were poured upon, this, upon the substitute, Christ Jesus. But not only did he die for his church, Jesus also rose again for the church. And this also is the blessing of Abraham, the resurrection of Christ is the blessing of Abraham upon the whole earth. How so? What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with the blessing of Abraham? Consider what we read in Galatians 3.14. Please don't miss this. Paul says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question. Who gives the Holy Spirit? Well, according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit is given by none other than the resurrected Christ. After all, Jesus had to ascend for the Spirit to descend. The living Christ is the one who sends the Spirit. Let me ask you a second question. What is the Holy Spirit? We can't miss this. What is the Holy Spirit? First, consider these words from the Lord Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 23. This is what the Lord Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Incredible words. Here Jesus is saying that whoever loves him is indwelt by both Jesus and the Father. How does that happen? Well, the context of John 14 gives us the answer. In this chapter, Jesus was speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit. Right? You're going to say yes. Therefore, the way in which both Jesus and the Father make their home within the believer is by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. The Spirit is then the life of God within us. The Spirit is Christ sharing His life, His eternal, resurrected, and blissful life with us, His people. Do you know where I'm going with this? This is what Paul already referred to as the new self. In Ephesians 4.24, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life. Furthermore, let me ask you this. Let's try to connect the dots. What is the glory from which man fell short? Well, if you were paying attention at the beginning, you will remember that the glory from which we fell short is the what? The life of God. Therefore, by sending the Spirit to dwell in us, the risen Christ is bringing us back to what? To glory. By the Holy Spirit, the risen Christ is bringing many sons to glory. The sending of the Spirit is the beginning of the restoration of all things as the risen Christ shares his life with us by the Spirit. This, my friends, is the gospel in which all our hope rests. 
There's nothing else. There is no greater message. There is no other salvation. There is no other hope. There is only one. And it is all rooted in the work of a single man, God incarnate, the seed of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the son of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He underwent death on the cross so that the justice of God could be vindicated. And he also underwent death to destroy it by rising again from the dead, bringing with himself a brand new creation, including the church, his bride. My friend, regardless of how much of this you do or you don't understand, I can tell you this with absolute confidence. You need the crucified and risen Christ. You need him. Everything about you depends on him. This is what we are about. We proclaim Christ. We confess Christ. We trust Christ. And we love Jesus Christ, Savior of guilty sinners. He stands at the very center of everything that we do. So let me ask you this. What do you have apart from Jesus? What hope do you have without him? I can answer that for you. You have none. You must listen to this because if you leave this place today trusting in Christ, you have reason to rejoice for you have everything. On the other hand, if you leave this place today without him, you have reason to mourn, for you have nothing. All of human history, all of human history, including your very history, your personal history, is about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot make sense of your life apart from Christ. Now, this leads us to the third question, which is very relevant to us. Why is it called the gospel of peace? I want you to notice with me that Paul doesn't say that this is a gospel which can potentially bring peace. He doesn't say that. Neither does Paul say that this is a gospel which under the right circumstances can bring peace. None of that. What does Paul say? He calls it the gospel of peace. This means that the gospel is not just something to, that produces peace. Rather, peace is the very essence of what the gospel is. It is the gospel of peace. Now, I will draw some applications from this in a few moments, but now just think with me about this piece. Consider the following insight. When the resurrected Lord, when the resurrected Lord appeared to the disciples for the first time, what were the first words that came out of his lips when he greeted them? In John chapter 20, peace be with you. Three times did he say those words in John chapter 20. There's something very unique and special about those words. Before his resurrection, Jesus had never greeted his disciples this way. Why? Because only the resurrected Lord can speak peace to men. How so? Well, the resurrection of Jesus has everything to do with the peace that Jesus offers because the peace of Jesus has a very unique quality. I need you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read a passage that reveals to us an incredible aspect of the peace that Jesus comes to offer. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This was written 700 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Isaiah spoke of Jesus. This is what he says. We love to talk about this verse in, in, during Christmas time, but I think it's equally relevant for Resurrection Sunday. Consider verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? 
peace. But then consider verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Do you see the connection? Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But what is the quality of the peace that he offers? Isaiah says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, the peace Isaiah is talking about is unending. It is eternal. The only way for this peace to have no end is if the prince of peace himself lives forever. And what does the word of God say in Romans chapter 6 verse 9? This is what Paul said. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The resurrection of Jesus guarantees the eternal quality of the peace that he brings. This is also why Jesus could tell his disciples, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. The peace inaugurated by the Lord Jesus is unique, and unlike anything the world can offer, it is eternal, it is unbreakable peace. The day Jesus dies again will be the day peace is destroyed. And there's not a chance. But not only is the peace of the gospel an eternal peace that will reach into eternity, it is also a relational peace that reaches into our present experience. The gospel is called the gospel of peace because it redefines two relationships, namely with God and with men. First, consider how the gospel grants us peace with God. In Romans 5:1, the apostle Paul says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not in yourself. Remember how the gospel is about looking out away from yourself? This is what Paul said. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I could say much about the death of the Lord at this point, but because it is Resurrection Sunday, let me put an emphasis on the resurrection. What does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with our peace with God? It has everything to do with our peace with God. Why? Because the, re the resurrection of Jesus is among many things. It is the stamp of approval from God the Father upon his Son. In other words, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the greatest proof that the Father is actually well pleased with the work of Jesus Christ and that now sinners can be reconciled to God. The empty tomb is evidence that peace has been accomplished. But second, consider with me how the gospel grants us peace with men. Paul has already expressed this truth in no uncertain terms when he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus is our peace. Whose peace? Ours, meaning Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world, can now enjoy peace with each other because of Christ. Believers are one in Christ, for through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is our peace, my brothers and sisters. There is no greater source of peace on earth, which naturally leads us into our final considerations for this morning, which is my attempt at drawing a few points of application as we bring this to a close. How do we apply this gospel of peace to our lives in the here and now? Well, let's consider, consider the shoes. The ladies are excited about this. <laughs> Men, not so much. But shoes matter. 
Paul talks about the shoes of the gospel of peace. Why does Paul use the analogy of the shoes? Well, the answer is in the context, which is spiritual warfare. And Paul has been making the case that we all need to put on the whole armor of God as we fight this relentless battle against Satan and evil forces. The gospel of peace is the third piece of the armor of God, which Paul illustrates for us as the shoes. What's up with the shoes? It is a well-known fact, and it was a well-known fact back then, that soldiers needed strong shoes that would help them cover long distances as they sought to invade enemy territory. But this is an obvious sort of knowledge, is it not? I read that even during the American Revolutionary War, shoes were extremely important for soldiers. It is reported that at Valley Forge, soldiers were dying at a rate of 12 per day during winter, and many have to have their feet and legs amputated due to inadequate footwear, which led to frostbite. Shoes matter, especially in war. It is only appropriate then that Paul included the shoes. What might not be so obvious is how the gospel of peace fulfills that role. Shoes are obviously a reference to something upon which you stand and something with which you walk. Shoes then have the double purpose of helping you hold your ground and also move forward, both of which reveal something extremely important concerning Satan's schemes. Let me remind you of what I said several weeks ago regarding spiritual battle and the armor of God. Each piece of the armor reveals to us something about the schemes of the devil and how he operates in the world, hence the need for the armor. For instance, Satan hates truth. Therefore, what do we need? The belt of truth. Satan hates righteousness. Therefore, what do we need? The breastplate of righteousness. The same holds true for the shoes of the gospel of peace. The need for these shoes is born out of Satan's relentless hatred for and attacks upon what? The peace of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I cannot recall a time, at least in my own short lifetime, in which Satan has been more actively seeking to destroy the peace of Christ. I don't remember ever seeing anything like this. So what does this mean? Well, at least four important truths. First, and we'll keep this short, that the gospel of peace is the shoes upon which we stand, means that we must remain strong. Listen to this. We must remain strong in our conviction that peace is a person who sits at the right hand of the Father. We cannot forget this. The gospel of peace is the shoes because at the most fundamental level, we must stand upon this conviction that Jesus is our peace with both God and man. And therefore, it is untouchable peace. Can anything touch Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the Father? 
Dear ones, let me ask you a question. Is it at least possible that some of us are beginning to forget this all-important truth? I think it is possible because this is what Satan does. My Christian friend, do not be deceived. Satan will do everything he can to try to convince you. Listen to this. This is basic, but it's important. Satan will do everything he can to try to convince you that the only way for you to actually know and enjoy peace in this world is by getting people to agree with you about everything. I hate to break it to you, but in this life, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> I am sad to say that I'm beginning to see Christians lose their peace over the fact that others don't think like them. It's true. So let me remind you of something. Make sure that through your actions, your reactions, your words, your attitudes, you are showing the world that your peace is anchored in heaven where Christ is, not in this world. Second, that the gospel of peace is the shoes with which we walk means that we must be Christ-centered peacemakers as we live in a world dominated by conflict and division. This means that we must never, ever, ever compromise this message of the gospel because if we compromise the gospel, we lose the peace. Therefore, we must not accept any message, any narrative, any ideology being promoted in the world or in any church or in any institution that seeks to rebuild relational barriers that Jesus has already destroyed through the gospel of peace, and this is happening today. Let me be direct. This is the reason why I despise ideologies such as critical theory. This is the reason why I despise it. Because those ideologies are anti-gospel. They divide and they destroy. And therefore, those ideologies have no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Third, that the gospel of peace is the shoes means that when trials, tribulations, and sorrows come our way, we walk in peace. He never leaves us. Trials, tribulations, and pain are a common strategy of Satan to make us doubt and lead us into despair as we see clearly in the book of Job. Satan's schemes was this. Take away his health, take away his loved ones, take away his possessions, then he will lose his peace and he will curse God. My brothers and sisters, Jesus rose from the dead. Your pain and your sorrow might be all too real, but the power of Christ is greater Still, the emptiness of the tomb means fullness of life in the peace of the Holy Spirit. The emptiness of the tomb means fullness of life in the peace of the Holy Spirit. And fourth and final, that the gospel of peace is the shoes, means that as we live our lives, this is the message we proclaim to the world. We have no other message. We have nothing else to offer. Nothing else to offer. This is, not, this is not a political idea. This is not a philosophical ideology. This is a message that came from heaven. Christ came to reconcile us to God. In other words, as you walk in the gospel, 
you proclaim the gospel. So let me finish with this question. What will you do? What will you do with the crucified and risen Christ? He calls you this morning to repent. To repent and to believe in his name. Do so today. Do not put off repentance until tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come. Jesus died and he rose again so that we might go from dust to glory. And so will you believe in him today? Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning that the Lord Jesus and his gospel, they change everything. For Christ died for our sins upon the cross. He was buried, but he did not remain dead. He rose again. And we thank you that he did that so that we might go from dust to glory. And he came to lead many sons to glory. I pray for those of us who are believers in this room who have come to faith in Christ Jesus. May our love for him grow even greater and stronger today. And I also pray for those in this room who are walking in darkness, without hope and without God in this world. Father, bring them to the light. Open their eyes that they might see their need of Jesus Christ, Savior of sinners. And now, Father, do what only you can do and take this word implanted deep into our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.